You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. On November 21st, 2008, Domino's Pizza stock was selling for $3.03 a share. Which means that if you had taken $10,000 out of your retirement account and bought $10,000 worth of Domino's Pizza stock on November 21st, 2008, it felt very risky at the time. But if you did that and then sold it on October 2nd of this year, that $10,000 would have earned you $1.4 million in profit. If each of us in this room then had taken $100, just $100, and you had invested in Domino's Pizza back at that time and then sold it on October 2nd of this year, then that $100 would have earned each of us $14,000. the Christmas at the Hullet House would be a little bit different if I had done that. But what's the problem? Why didn't you buy Domino's Pizza stock back in 2008 and then sell it, sell it exactly on October 2nd of this year? Answer? I didn't know. Open your Bible with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Because after we look at this passage, with the investment that really matters, you'll never be able to say, I just didn't know. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 16, but then we're going to focus our attention on verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Now our passage. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open up this book, we confess that we are asking you to do a very spiritual work that that you would give us grace to behold Jesus Christ and as we behold him I pray that we would be transformed more and more to be like him Father we confess to you a thousand distractions inside this room and inside of our own heads We confess to you that we are, it's just very easy for us to say, Lord, come and reign over me. Lord, I pray that you would break down every barrier, every, every little part that we hope you just leave alone today. Lord, I pray that's where you would go. I pray that you would bring us into joyful submission. Hopeful trust in your Son. I pray that you would help me to be clear. And I pray, Father, that you would do things that that I have not even thought of preparing. I, I don't want to preach a sermon. By your grace, I want to preach Christ. And Father, I pray, Lord, that he would work to save to bring repentance, to bring faith, transformation. And I pray this in His name. Amen. In this passage that we're going to focus on this morning, I believe that Paul wants to press four things into our minds. And I'm going to summarize it this way in one paragraph. And then I just want to take each little part of that Um, one at a time. I I believe that Paul is saying, I'm not perfect, but I am pressing on. Therefore, all of us who are perfect, let's press on while practicing what we have already attained. Let me take each of these one at a time, and hopefully they can follow me. So we should be on slide three, I think. This first point, I'm not perfect perfect. We are in this passage, what I believe is the very climax 
of the book of Philippians. This is, I hope that you can feel that as we read this passage, we are standing on sacred ground. And I look at this passage and I say, what am I supposed to say to that? Because I don't want to say anything that would distract from this incredible message. I don't want to cover a song and mess it up. So, so what I really want to do is just maybe hopefully just point out a few things. Just kind of shed some light on some things so that, so that the message of Paul will ring even more clear in your mind. But, but if this passage is challenging to preach, I want to encourage you that this passage is challenging to hear. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There are few passages in the Bible that are, that are even less so in the rest of all of human history that are more beautiful than those two verses. They aren't just beautiful. These verses are powerful. They're inspirational. And that's part of my fear. That you would hear Paul in this passage and you would think to yourself, well, wow, oh, that's so beautiful. That's the stuff that inspiring speeches are made of. But, but that's the Apostle Paul. That's so far out of my league. I'm a teacher. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a factory worker. I'm a high school student. I'm an elementary school student. What does this have to do with me? This guy's on another level. Like, I just want to live a decent life. Raise my family, love my neighbor, hopefully share Christ and get to see him save some people, serve in the church. I just want to encourage you to get ready to be challenged by this passage. All the homemakers and factory workers and students and normal people, get ready to be challenged by this passage. But, but, but he begins this most challenging of all passages with, with words that are strangely encouraging. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Think about what he must be saying. The, the Apostle Paul is admitting, is, is proclaiming openly that he is not possessing everything that he is preaching. He, he's admitting that he knows Christ, verse 10 but not the way he wants to know Christ. It's very possible that he's, he's saying about verse 9 that I believe that I am counted righteous in Christ with nothing to prove to God or to anybody else. But it seems that he's not quite there yet. He hasn't fully grasped to the depths of his soul. He doesn't yet perfectly walk in resurrection power. As he suffers, he's not always enjoying fellowship with Christ. He's not all the way there yet. And he says it. Not that I've already attained it. 
or have already become perfect. Now, that may sound discouraging to some of you. You may be thinking, wait a minute. So you want me to listen to a guy that's not possessing what he's preaching. (laughs) I want to encourage you, that's doubly true of you this morning. You're hearing it from Paul and you're certainly hearing it from me. But this frank confession is meant to be crazy encouraging. Do you hear what he's saying? Let me just ask it this way. Anybody here ever struggle to follow Christ? (laughs) Verse 12 says you're not alone in the struggle. And what may be even more encouraging to you, you're not alone in your failure. So sometimes I look around, I look at people around me and I'm like, they they just seem to have it more together than I do. They don't seem to have the doubts that I have. They don't seem as prone to discouragement as I am. You look at verse 12 and take heart. Even the Apostle Paul was a work in progress. Now think about what this means. Here's one thing that it means. It means that the best of men are just men at best. I think it's easy for us to put people like Paul on a pedestal. Almost like I'm blaspheming by saying that he's not there yet. That he doesn't fully believe the gospel. That he's not living in resurrection power. That's not blasphemy. He's just a man. How many people have been made shipwreck of the faith because some hero preacher of theirs had a moral failure? This is a good reminder in this text. Don't look at people. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Secondly, following Jesus is wonderful, but I want to tell you, it is hard. It's true, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's true. And there is great rest in Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus also says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So think about the very found the very basics of Christianity is daily crucifixion. That's hard. That's painful. Sometimes I think we share the gospel the way doctors describe surgeries to us. As they take a needle way too big to ever be inserted in a human body and say to you, that you may feel a little discomfort. (laughs) You follow Jesus and you're not just going to feel a little discomfort. You're signing up for daily crucifixion. It's hard. Third, but perhaps more encouraging. Who wrote verse 12? Who wrote verse 12? Paul. Now let me ask you this. Who really wrote verse 12? (laughs) The Holy Spirit. You need to hear this. You need to hear this because you're tempted in your heart to think that God is just waiting on you to mess up. So He didn't come and slap you down. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write the words, I'm not yet perfect. 
Isn't it fantastic that the God that you are seeking after knows that you're but dust? He wants to tell you that to encourage your heart. Because He wants you to keep going. He wants you to keep standing, to keep striving. Even though it feels like often you just keep on falling short. And doesn't verse 12 remind us that we need to be patient with each other? Paul's not there. Neither your kids. Neither is your spouse. Neither is your mama or your daddy. You, you tell me, look at verse 11. When will you and I reach perfection? Paul says, I'm not perfect. You ain't perfect either. That's not an excuse. That's the Holy Spirit saying, get back up. So what's Paul's first point? I'm not perfect. I don't think that's the end of the story. Listen to what he says next. This is point two. I'm not perfect, but I am pressing on. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not being perfect is not an excuse to not press on. Let me say that again. Not being perfect is not an excuse to not press on. In reality, the fact that we aren't perfect is the reason we ought to keep on pressing on. Look at what Paul's pressing on toward in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, I want to take hold of that thing for which Jesus took hold of me. And what is that thing? And we don't have to look very far. You look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Some, to be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul was appointed by God to proclaim the gospel. And it is clear from this book, it is clear from his life, it's clear from the explosion of Christianity largely through this man that here's a guy who said himself, heart, soul, mind, strength to fulfill that calling. That calling landed him in a miserable prison. But he doesn't say, calling must be over, here I am in jail. No, what does he do in chapter 1 verse 12 through 20? <laughs> he keeps on preaching. His audience inside the jail was a whole lot smaller than it had been outside the jail. But he embraces that audience inside the jail. And the Bible says that the Roman guards were hearing the gospel. 
Paul is looking out of the bars of that prison and he's rejoicing that Jesus is being preached by other people. But the gospel is still going forward and Paul keeps on preaching. In other words, Christ Jesus laid hold of Paul and appointed him to proclaim Christ. And so with all his might, regardless of the curveballs that life keeps throwing at him, COVID-19, he is determined to fulfill that calling. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I love the picture that he paints in verse 14. Because for years, I read verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And I think about that goal, and in my mind, I don't know why, but in my mind, I envision Paul like running a race. And he's striving, he's running toward the goal of the finish line. But the picture that he paints is even more vivid than that. I press on, he says, toward the goal. Write down Job 16, 12 through 13. And then write down Lamentations 3, verse 12. You can just circle the word goal and write those down. Let let me show it to you. I think they're on the slide here. Job 16, I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. There's our word. As his goal, as his target, his arrows surround me. Lamentations 3 verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. You get that picture? He says, says, I've not laid hold of it yet, but I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul likens himself to an arrow that Jesus has selected and put in his bow and shot toward the goal and as he flies toward that target with all of his might he's reaching toward that target while God himself calls him and draws him onward and upward let me just remind you if you're in Christ you've been selected by God you've been commissioned by Christ You've been plucked from the quiver and put in the bow, as it were. It's a hard road. It's a painful road. Paul and Pastor Jonathan remind us last week that the road upward is a road that is lined with thorns and obstacles and lots of pain. But at the end of that road, look at verse 14, is a prize. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 calls it an imperishable crown. 1 Timothy chapter 4 calls it the crown of righteousness. Revelation chapter 2 calls it the crown of life. 2 Timothy chapter 2 calls it eternal glory. And maybe my favorite, Galatians chapter 5 verse 5 calls it the hope of righteousness. Isn't that a good word? Your days of falling short are quickly coming to an end. Your days of falling on your knees and saying, God, I'm sorry. Again. Those days are coming to an end. Your days of fighting against sin and temptation and decay and all of your weaknesses are coming to an end. 
Look what he says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. And believe it, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Anybody longing for that day? That day is coming. Would you listen to me carefully? Everyone who reaches for that prize in heaven will pay a price, must pay a price on earth. You see that? Look carefully at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice how Paul constructs this sentence. I want you to notice what he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal. But in verse 13, what, what does that pressing on look like in real life? Do you see this in verse 13? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul says, that's how I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He presses on by forgetting and reaching. If you're not uncomfortable yet, you're probably not thinking about this carefully enough. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, those are words that make for inspiring speeches at the climax of inspiring movies, but those are, are hard words. They're hard words because they require us to embrace the most difficult and painful of all commitments. The commitment to change. Oh, I know. You're a huge fan of the idea of change. And you might even be good at the initiation of change. But if you're like any of the other 7 billion people on the planet, you have a problem with the, apps, with the actual implementation of change. Well, Tommy, you don't know me. Why would you say that? I don't need to know you. You got a list of New Year's resolutions a mile long that never saw the light of February. And you got a whole list of things a hundred miles long that you said, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to start doing that, but you keep on doing what you say you're going to stop and you're not doing what you say you're going to start. The reality is that even those of us with the best of intentions are constantly being pulled back like paper clips to a magnet into these old familiar patterns. Old familiar patterns that you might hate. But you're constantly being drawn. Oh, I'm going to do this differently. And you find yourself doing it the way you've always done it. I'll just give you one example. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling 
or disputing. You know how hard it is for someone who is naturally a complainer to obey verse 14 and to take on a heart of genuine gratitude and joy. Let me tell you what it takes. It takes a miracle. But that's okay. Because you guys have gathered in this room this morning and opened up this book this morning to hear someone proclaim a miracle working, heart transforming, life changing gospel. A gospel that offers to you resurrection power. That's power to change. Whatever you got going on in your life and whatever needs to change, there is nothing more significant than the change from death to life. If He is able to bring about that change, then He can certainly bring about the puny change that you need in your life. We're talking about a gospel that offers to you the very power of God for salvation. The very power of God to transform you. So raise your hand if you've been called to follow Jesus. You might not be following Him yet, but you've been called to follow Jesus. Jesus says, and He's saying it right now, as, as through my voice, follow me. If you have been called to follow Jesus, you are going to have to get used to change. The call to follow Jesus is a call to transformation. Do might be conformed to this world, but be transformed. It'd be a whole lot easier if it all happened at once. But the Bible says it doesn't. It says you've got to behold Jesus. You've got to study Jesus. You've got to admire Jesus. You've got to worship Jesus. And the more you look to Jesus, the more you'll be transformed into the image of Jesus. So I want to think about what this means. For, for some of us, this means that we need to what, what, what needs to be left behind? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. For, for some of us in this room, what needs to be left behind is just sin. Straight up sin. And you know God's been pointing it out. And you came this morning a little bit wary because you were hoping that God wouldn't put His finger on it yet again and remind you, I want that thing to be gone. I want that thing crucified. Let me just keep it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You need to leave behind your sin. That's the call of the gospel. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Stop fighting him. By the power of the resurrection, by the power of the Spirit of God, crucify that sin. Forget it. Leave it. Forsake it. Don't leave this room until you get someone that you trust and you pull them aside and confess it. And say, I want you to promise me that you'll get on your knees and pray that God would crucify this in my life. 
But for others of us, we don't need to leave behind gross sin. What we need to forget about and to forsake are our merits, our good qualities, all the good things that we've done. That's Paul's story, right? Look back up to verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He had to forsake and to forget his goodness, his religious pedigree, his religious devotion, his religious zeal. Look, look at verse 6. His own record of obedience to the law of God. Let me remind you on the authority of God's Word that that gross immorality might smell worse than self-righteousness. But self-righteousness may be even more deadly. Ask the myriad of Pharisees who will fill up hell with pious prayers on their lips. Ask the rich young ruler who obeyed all the commandments from his youth, was turned away by Jesus. Ask the Pharisee who prayed next to the tax collector in the temple. That Pharisee left that temple that day secure in his goodness and rejected by God. That's the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The wicked younger brother wasted his life with prostitutes and liquor and he ends up with a robe on his back and a ring on his finger in his father's feast. But the good son. Think about that. The father's describing his kids. The good son, he ends up standing outside. And he ends up where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Listen to the gospel again, maybe for the first time. Romans 4, 5, But the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. What does this mean? It means if you love your soul, then you ought to ask yourself some very basic questions. Like, why do I do the good things that I do? Is it A, because I want to feel good about myself? Is it B, because I want to look good in front of people? Or is it C, because I want to earn in some way God's favor? I, I want to encourage you that all three of those spoil the goodness of whatever good thing you did. Because all three of these have one thing in common. They're all about earning approval. God's approval, people's approval, 
your own approval? Maybe your theology is way too solid to admit any of that, but let me tell you, this stuff is tricky. And you need to love your soul enough to probe your motives and to ask yourself, do, do you ever hope that people will notice the good that you do? Just secretly you do it and you just hope, oh, I hope somebody's driving by right now. You ever hope people will admire you or, or the good things that you do? Do you ever get this feeling that when you're performing up to whatever standard that God is just a little bit more pleased with you on those days than He is on the days when you're failing? Look at verse 3. We are the true circumcision who, who worship in the Spirit of Christ. We serve in the Spirit strength, not our own. We glory in Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ and in His works, not in ours. And we put how much confidence in the flesh? Zero confidence in the flesh. In other words, we put no confidence, nor do we take any credit for ourselves. Am I stating that too strongly? Verse 9 says, I'm preaching truth this morning. Because, because the Bible says, Paul says, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I'm forgetting everything that's behind me. I count all my so-called goodness as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In other words, I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing on. Therefore, he says, point three, all of us who are perfect, let's press on. I'm going to make this real quick. Look at verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. I simply want to point out two things. First, and I'm not going to spend any time here, though I'd like to, I want you to notice what Paul does not say. He says in verse, he doesn't say in verse 15, listen, I know you're hearing me say all this and it sounds really crazy, but if, if in anything you have a different attitude, don't worry, God will reveal to us which of us is right. I want you to notice what Paul says. It's just, a, it's just another reminder that the gospel that Paul preaches is true. Paul is not waiting for his gospel to be corrected. He says, if, you, if you're, I know what I'm preaching may sound strange to your ears, but if you don't agree with me, don't worry. God will reveal it to you. Secondly, here's the main thing we need to see in verse 15. That we have right now counted to our credit what we are longing to see accomplished in our character. We have right now counted to our credit what we are longing to see accomplished in our character. It might be helpful to take a pencil and circle the word perfect in verse 15 and then draw a line up to verse 12 and circle the word perfect there. Because is Paul perfect? I know this is kind of a trick question. <laughs> because on one hand you would say, no, Paul knows he's not perfect. 
But on the other hand, in verse 15, Paul seems to be saying that I am perfect. He's got a long way to go, but in God's eyes, he has been clothed with all the merits and accomplishments of Christ by faith, so that in God's eyes, he is perfect. That's what verse 9 is all about. He gave up trying to achieve his own righteousness. Instead, by faith, he received the righteousness which comes from God. Here's the gospel in 21 words. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Here's what I'm trying to say. I hope this is clear. You and I spend way too much of our lives trying to prove that we're not ungodly. But Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says it's the ungodly are the only ones who are able to receive this gospel. To the one who does not work, the one who stops working, the one who forgets about his work and instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's the one who gets righteousness credited to their account. If you're in Christ, there's nothing left to earn. You have been declared. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 15. You have been declared perfect. And let me remind you, if you just go back and read the book of Philippians, that gets even more encouraging because Philippians chapter 1 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that the He who began a good work in you will do what? He'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So here's what we have. We're getting ready to go to verse 16. I I, I, I hope you see. This is verses 7 through 14. It just don't get better than this. This This is the highest of prose. This is the most encouraging thing that anybody could ever write. But it's amazing to me what he does in verse 16. After all that, it's it's like he lets us down. It's it's incredibly Anticlimactic. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which you were attained, to which you have attained. Really? I think that's the whole point. Because the Apostle Paul, more importantly, the Holy Spirit of God, wants you to take this high doctrine and live it right here in the minutia of your daily life. He wants you to live this gospel in your family. (laughs) At your sorry workplace. In your school. In Newton, North Carolina in 2020, coronavirus and all. And so he leaves us with his last point. Keep practicing what you have already attained. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. In other words, Paul says, join me. Do you see that in verse 16? Join me. He says, us. Let us keep living. Join me as I forget my sin and forget my goodness and keep reaching forward. But, as we reach the grass, the heavenly... We need to walk in the righteousness 
that's already been declared to be ours. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying the same thing he says in verse in chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel. You've been declared holy. Be holy. You have been loved with lavish, patient love. Love your spouse. Love your children. Love your mom and daddy and co-worker. With lavish, gracious Love, prove yourselves, as he says in chapter 2, to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. See, most of us missed Domino's shares when they were $3. We didn't know. I didn't know. But you can't say that now about the only investment that really matters. That the day is quickly coming when you will stand before God and you will give an account of your life here on planet Earth. And this morning, Jesus is calling you to invest your whole portfolio, zero diversification. Invest your whole portfolio portfolio in Him. And He promises. And this passage makes it clear. There's going to be lots of ups and downs. Lots of days when you feel like you are fighting a losing battle and have wasted your life. But in the end, He guarantees your investment. He'll take your sin and He'll give you Himself forever. And if you don't, you better enjoy whatever you accumulate now. Everything will be lost forever. Everybody in this room has one life. Where are you going to invest it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is no prayer that I can pray that would, that would cause rebirth. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use your word to cause people this morning to be born again. That you would cause people right now who are clinging to sin to let it go. And that you would work in hearts right now, people that are clinging to their own goodness and trying to impress you and impress people. I pray they'd let it go. I pray we would trust in Christ. I pray this in His name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.